Well, good morning once again, church family. We're going to be in the book of Acts again today for the message, and I hope you're finding this narrative about the birth of the church to be as compelling and as exciting as I do. I was talking to a church member last week who said that he picked up his Bible to read the text for for that week to prepare for his Sunday morning Bible study Zoom class, and he had to make himself stop reading at chapter 13 because he was so gripped by the text and by this true story of how God's Holy Spirit came upon the new covenant believers in Jerusalem and spread out into the ends of the earth. This ragtag group of disciples, this uneducated group of fishermen from Galilee, these deacons who are Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews who are considered outsiders, they are continuing to be filled with the power of God as the Holy Spirit moves them to be the witnesses for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And today we're going to dive into a rich passage in Acts chapter 8, and I hope you'll see how timely and relevant this passage is for us here in the United States in this crazy year of 2020. We're going to be in the second half of Acts chapter 8 today as we continue to follow the story of Philip. Remember we talked about Philip last week, who's one of those seven deacons who was elected by the congregation of First Baptist Church Jerusalem to serve those who were on the margins of the church, those who were outsiders, those who were Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews, those who were widows, those who were orphans, to make sure that they were having their needs met and to free up the apostles to be able to preach and teach the word of God. So we know that, that Philip fled this persecution because this guy named Saul was ravaging the church and he went up north to, to, to get away from this persecution But it was always the Holy Spirit leading him and compelling him to go. And when he got to Samaria, what did he do? He told everybody the good news, the gospel of Jesus that had taken a hold of his life and taken root in his soul and borne fruit. And he told everyone about the good work that God had done through sending the rescuer, Jesus. And what happened? Revival broke out in Samaria. And today we're going to see how Philip shared the gospel with just one person, We saw how the whole region of Samaria was transformed by the gospel in the first half of chapter 8. Now we're going to see how one person's life was transformed by the gospel. And it's important to see that God cares just as much about reaching this one man as he does about reaching a whole region of people. Because our God is the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. He cares about each one of you and me as individual people And he loves you more than you could ever imagine. And God used Philip to to touch this man's life. Philip brought the touch of God to bear upon the life of this man. There's an old poem, you may have read it from the 1920s, called The Master's Touch, or The Touch of the Master. And it's, it's sometimes called The Old Violin. It's a story about this auctioneer who holds up this battered old violin, and it's not very good shape. And he says, how much do I hear for this? And $1, $2, $3. And he says, going once, going twice. And an old man stands up from the back of the room and says, hang on a minute. And he takes this old violin and he tunes it up and plays this beautiful melody on it. It just sounds incredible. He's a master violinist. And then he sits down and people dry their eyes. And the auctioneer says, how much do I hear for this violin? $1,000, $2,000. 
$3,000. You see, the, the touch of the master makes the thing more valuable. The touch of the master transforms this thing into something that has inherent, amazing worth and value. You know that the end of the poem makes the point clear that this instrument that has been touched by the hand of the master is similar to the life of a sinner who's been saved by grace through faith and touched by the hand of God. The last stanza of the poem says, but the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. We have an opportunity, like Philip in this passage that we're gonna see today, to bear the touch of God's hand to those who need it most. And we know that there are people all around us who are desperate for the touch of God upon their lives. There are some key factors, though, that come into play. If we're going to bear the touch of God to others, we're going to have to keep these things in mind. The first point is that you have to be in touch with the Spirit. You have to be in touch with the Holy Spirit. We saw a few weeks ago how back in Acts chapter 6, when the deacons were first elected at First Baptist Church Jerusalem, <laughs> that's not really what it's called, you know that, right? I'm just saying that. At the first church that was ever born in Jerusalem, that says in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, that these seven people who are chosen are full of the Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've surrendered their life to Christ and received the imputation of God the Spirit in their soul. That enables them to minister to the needy among them. And Philip, we know, was one of those deacons. He was one of those who were chosen. And people who are full of the Spirit, people who are in touch with the Spirit, they bear out the fruits of the Spirit. They are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These fruits manifest themselves in the lives of those who are filled with the Spirit. People who are filled with the Spirit are also sensitive to his promptings in their life, no matter how strong or how subtle they may be. The Reverend Trey Heyman, our youth pastor, preached a few weeks ago about those moments where you feel like you should say something to someone and, and you wonder, is that the spirit talking or is that the burrito I ate? What, what is it that is prompting me in this moment to go and speak to this person? When we're in touch with the Holy Spirit, we know how to recognize and respond to the voice of God, to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That was Trey's point, how to recognize and respond to the prompting of the Spirit. Philip was a man so captivated by his love for his Savior, by his devotion to Jesus Christ, that he had been transformed by grace and no longer lived for himself or for his own desires, but for whatever the Spirit of God prompted him to do. Why did he go to Samaria when the persecution broke out in Jerusalem? Samaritans were not really friendly to Jewish people. It was not a very hospitable place for a Jewish person to flee to. He was following the Spirit's lead. The danger and the persecution actually was part of God's prompting him to go to Samaria where his ministry was exponentially magnified. And sometimes the Spirit leads through whispers, sometimes he, he leads through more strong measures, like here in verse 26, 
when the Spirit shows up this time to Philip, it's in the form of an angel. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. You know, I wish sometimes that, you know, the Lord would show up to me in an angel form and tell me what to do because it's not always easy to understand those promptings. But usually in the scriptures, when an angel shows up to someone, they're terrified. The angel usually first says, do not be afraid. But Philip here just rose and went. There's no, the angel didn't say, don't be afraid, Philip, because Philip knew to look for the supernatural things that happened in his life. He, he knew that the angels were constantly working around him. Hebrews chapter one, verse 14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. The reality is that angels are constantly working to minister to those of us who are called by God and being saved according to his purpose. Philip knew to look for that. So he rose and went. Where did he go? He went on the other side of Jerusalem. Samaria was up in the north. Gaza was the last watering hole on the way to Egypt when you're headed southwest down from Israel. So he goes. And when we're in touch with the Spirit, we know how to respond in obedience. So he goes and we look for that angel activity that's always happening around us in the spiritual realm. So Philip goes, verse 27 says, he rose and went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. This is a big deal. The gospel is about to leave the, the ancient Near East and to move into the continent of Africa. Hundreds, uh, hundreds of years before the gospel would ever reach Europe or anyone who looked like me, the gospel was about to invade and explode in Africa. It's interesting to think about. Philip's confronted with a cross-cultural opportunity to engage a very influential person, the, the treasurer, a court official, to the, the queen of this ancient Nubian kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Cush, as it's sometimes referred to, the kingdom of Ethiopia, as it says here. It's south of Egypt. It's kind of in the heart of Africa. And he's a eunuch, it says here. We don't know if that term eunuch means that he's simply a, a court officer or if it's used in the more stricter sense of that word. Eunuchs often served as uh, court liaisons or, or people who served in the royal uh, households and, and royal uh, courts in the kingdoms of the East. It really, until fairly recently, that was common practice. But the Old Testament law actually forbade eunuchs from becoming part of the congregation of God's people. The, the Torah explicitly forbade eunuchs from entering into the assembly of the Lord. They couldn't go in the temple. They were removed from enjoying the privileges of God's chosen people. And I think it's so fascinating how the prophet Isaiah, we know that the eunuch is reading Isaiah here, and it's that same prophet who in, in, in chapter 56, verse three to five, actually prophesied about a time when eunuchs would be included in the family of God, when they would be brought into the assembly. Let not the eunuch say, Isaiah says, behold, I am a dry tree, 
For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. It's a beautiful promise that's about to be fulfilled right here in Acts chapter 8. These, this pattern that we're seeing of the gospel going to Samaria, who were considered to be mixed-race, half-breed, mongrel people, that they're brought into God's family. And now we see that this Ethiopian eunuch is about to become part of the Lord's family as well, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. He had traveled to Jerusalem to worship, it says, probably one of the big festivals, and, and we know that he was probably spiritually seeking for the truth. He was a fan of Yahweh. He was a, a, a Jewish enthusiast of some sort, and he had come up for this festival, and he's reading, of all books, Isaiah, sitting in his chariot, reading the scroll of Isaiah. As a wealthy person, he could purchase a scroll, the text of Isaiah, reading it in Greek because the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And then verse 29, the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So far we've seen the Spirit lead Philip in different ways. We saw him use difficult persecution to drive Philip northward into Samaria. We've seen the Spirit lead through an angel, and now he leads through this still, small voice. Go over and join this chariot. It's great to be open to the Spirit, to be sensitive to the work of angels around you. All that's great, but what good is it if we're not obedient? What if reckless obedience doesn't accompany a sensitivity to the Spirit? Being in touch with the Spirit is only worth whatever our obedience that follows. Look at verse 30. As soon as Philip hears this voice, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you are reading? You know, the fact that people in ancient times read out loud is how Philip knows that he's reading the scriptures from Isaiah. And Philip obeys the still, small voice, the inner voice, the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't just go up to the eunuch, but he runs to him, it says in verse 30. He runs to him. Why is he running? It says the chariot is going back to, e to Ethiopia. I like to think that Philip is standing there by the road and sees this beautiful Ethiopian chariot go by, and he hears the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and so he runs to catch up with the chariot, and he's just jogging alongside the chariot saying, hey, hey, what's up? You, you know what you're reading there? Do you understand that? Really? I can help you with that. And he's just running along, and so the Ethiopian invites him up. And, and you see there's two perspectives on what God is doing here. There's two different perspectives on God's saving work that we see in this passage so far. From above, we see the sovereign God who has worked in this man's heart to bring him from Africa up to Israel to make a spiritual search for what is true, for what is good. He's searching the scriptures to find out what God is doing in his heart and in his life. And then on the ground level, we see the human obedience of Philip. We see how 
God used Philip to go and, and speak to this man and how he used both those things to bring this man to saving faith. Lloyd Ogilvie, the Presbyterian pastor who served as chaplain to the U.S. Senate recently, he used to say, the Lord of all creation has ordained that he would do his work through us. Our seeking the Spirit's guidance and obeying what he wants us to do and say is the way he works to bless the world. God's sovereign work plus man's obedience brings the touch of God to needy human lives. Think about that. The, the implications here are huge. But there must be all kinds of chance encounters that we experience every day that are ordained by God, preordained by God. And in the lives of us who are sensitive, for, for those who are prompt, hearing the promptings of the Holy Spirit, those chance encounters can become life-changing for us and for those that we encounter. I can't tell you how many times I've picked up the phone here at the church. Maybe Lil has stepped away from her desk or something, or uh, the, the staff is running short that day and the phone's ringing, and I, you know, I, I'll pick it up and say, what my bad, this, this is Nathan. And it, it seems like so many times I've done that, and, and someone on the other end of the line is in a desperate situation. They need prayer. They need food. They're in a really tough time, and they need some pastoral counseling. And I'm able to pray with them over the phone. I'm able to invite them to the church. And one time, they actually came to the church. It was a chance phone call that I happened to pick up. Someone who called the church office. And they ended up coming to our church. This happens because of divine appointments. Now I've started, before I answer the phone here at the church, I'll say a little prayer. Lord, direct me before I speak to this person. Because it could be life-changing. Not only was Philip in touch with the Spirit, but the second point of our bearing the touch of God is that we have to be in touch with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, I wonder if Philip was connecting the dots here when this impressive African chariot, this very foreign-looking royal official chariot rolls by. He knew that this man was a foreigner, that he was outside of God's covenant chosen people because of his ethnicity alone. I wonder if Philip guessed that he might be a eunuch, might be a royal official who, being a eunuch, he would be doubly outside of the old covenant people of God. And as the chariot passes, Philip again can hear this guy reading out loud as was the custom back then, which is kind of cool. I guess it's not cool if you're in a library or something, but it's kind of neat. It works to Philip's advantage here. And the text that this African man is reading is the perfect text to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's perfect for evangelizing. You know, evangelizing just means gospeling. It means telling good news. That's all that word means. It's the verb form of good news. So look at verse 30. Philip ran to him, again, swift, reckless obedience ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Isaiah 53, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of evangelism. It's a beautiful picture of cross-cultural evangelism. If, if someone asked me to pick a passage from the Old Testament to rightfully explain the gospel to them, it would probably be Isaiah 53. Isaiah is known as the fifth gospel because it's so full of, of these gospel images. You know, I'm, I'm sure that Philip backed up and, and walked this guy through the whole chapter. He said, let's, let's, let's look at verse one. Let's even go back to Isaiah 52. We, we see how Jesus' revelation, how he showed God's power, how his, God's right arm was revealed through the incarnation of Christ and how he was the root of Jesse. He fulfilled all the passages about being David's rightful heir, the ancestor from whom the scepter would not depart, and how he suffered in our place. Look at Isaiah 53, verse six. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. And Philip was so in touch with the gospel that it just says he opened his mouth and, and the gospel just came pouring out. He was so in tune with the good news of Jesus Christ that he didn't have to have a tract or a card. It was a part of who he was. It was natural for him to share the gospel. How many of you could explain the gospel if someone asked you about it? How many of you could walk someone through the scriptures and show them the, the good story of a God who is a good God, who made a good creation, and who put good people in it, but allowed them to choose for themselves what they would follow, and they chose to follow their own way, not God's way, and that's when this thing called sin came rushing into the world and plunged it into death and darkness and decay. But God had a plan. He formed a covenant people for himself, and he gave them the law, but the law only showed them how far short they fell of God's holy standard of perfect righteousness. So he sent his only son in the most dramatic move possible. He sent his only son who put on flesh and became like us and became obedient even unto death and who suffered in our place, who died on the cross paying the price that we could never pay for our own sins and then rose again conquering the power of death and the law and sin forever. And then he rose and ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father until that time when he comes again to finish making all things new. How many of you could just walk someone through that story of rescue and redemption and restoration and recreation that we call the gospel? I hope that all of you would be able to do that. And if you're not ready to do it, then get ready, prepare, learn, the gospel well. The eunuch said to Philip, after Philip says, we're saved by grace through faith in this true story of God's rescue plan for the world, and then we play our part in it. Do you want in? And the eunuch said, yes. It clicked with him. It resonated with him. The hound of heaven who had been pursuing this eunuch for I don't know how many years 
finally caught up to him and he surrendered his life to Christ and every part of him. And then he wanted to take the next step. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? The answer is nothing. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. I think baptism is one of the, the greatest things that I get to do as a pastor. It's one of my favorite things to do because it's such a joyous occasion. It's such a beautiful picture of the outward symbol of the inner reality of a person, a human being whose life has been completely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing to see someone who's been, who has died to themselves, who's been buried with Christ in death, but then raised with Christ into a whole new kind of existence, a whole new way of life now and forever. It's such a joyous occasion. Maybe Philip had told uh, this eunuch uh, what Peter told the crowd in Acts chapter 2 in verse 38 when they say, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you see the joy that comes with baptism. Look at verse 39. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Philip is swept away, kind of like Elijah in, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, but the, the eunuch doesn't miss him because he has the joy of Christ in his life now. We saw how in Samaria, back in, in verse 8 of, of this chapter, what does it say? That there was great joy in the city because people were being healed spiritually and physically, emotionally, socially. Relationships were being restored, and there was great joy that accompanied that. I love to see that. Joy is the inevitable byproduct of the gospel's movement. Whenever the good news of Christ goes forth in power, joy follows it breaks chains. The gospel restores the years that the locust ate. The gospel renews relationships. The gospel brings life where there used to be only death and destruction. And Philip was whisked away. And where did the Ethiopian go? The Ethiopian went home to the heart of Africa. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, says that the eunuch became a missionary to his own people which makes sense. You know, the, the Greeks for, for centuries had thought of the Ethiopians as barbaric people who lived on the ends of the earth. The truth is they had an incredibly advanced and sophisticated society. They, they were rival the, the Egyptians in, in their status in Africa. The Nubian kingdom, though, history shows us not long after this dissolved into three separate kingdoms that were united by a common faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe God used Philip to bring revival in, into Africa. And to this day, Sub-Saharan Africa is the largest concentration of Christians in the world. They're sending missionaries to America because we need them. It's amazing to see how all this started here in Acts chapter 8. The unstoppable church was going to the ends of the earth, what the Greeks considered to be the absolute furthest place away. People who used to be on the outside of God's chosen people, now through the new covenant, 
were being brought into the family of God. They were adopted in by grace through faith and they took on a name that cannot be cut off. Whether it was because of their color uh, or their station in life, they had been excluded and now they were included. There's a third and final key that we see through, through that idea. If we're gonna bear the touch of God to others, then we must be in touch with people. We must learn to see all human beings as created by God and divine image bearers of God, their creator. Every person that you lock eyes with has in, in, in unimaginable worth before God, their creator. They are loved. They are absolutely precious in the sight of the Lord God, regardless of their race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their gender, regardless of their geographic location, they are divine image bearers. We need to learn that. Philip was not only in touch with the spirit and with the gospel, but he was in touch with people. He had a heart to, to run to the nations, literally run to those that didn't look like him, to reach the souls that he encountered along the way of his life. It, it doesn't do us any good to be in touch with the spirit and the word if we don't have a heart for people around us. I know a lot of you introverts, like my wife, have said, oh, we're supposed to shelter in place and, and quarantine during this time? You mean I, I work from my couch and stay in my pajamas? I was made for this, I can, I can do this. My wife has said that a few times, I'm built for this. But the truth is, if, if we don't learn to embrace other people and to see others as God does, as those, especially those who are lost and searching, if, if our heart doesn't break in compassion for people around us who don't know the gospel, then there's something wrong. Our effectiveness in God's kingdom will only be as effective as how much we're in touch with the spirit, how much we're in touch with the word of God, the gospel, and how much we're in touch with people around us. You know, five centuries of racial wounds had separated the Jews from the Samaritans, and that dividing wall of hostility came crumbling down through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Philip didn't see uh, an agenda, uh, a, a political power agenda or a self-seeking agenda. His only agenda was to share the good news of the Jesus Christ who had transformed his life with the people of Samaria. Do, do we see people in the way that God sees them? Are we in touch with people at a human level that transcends all those outer categories that so easily divide us, political party, whatever their orientation to the world may be, do we let that divide us in a way that we see them as other than divine image bearers? If we're gonna bring the touch of the master to those whom we encounter through the divine appointments that he has prepared in advance for us each and every day, then we must daily yield to the Spirit's lead in our life, remembering that he guides in many different ways. Sometimes it's an inner voice prompting you, nudging you. Sometimes it's a shove through difficult situations. Are we in tune? Are we yielded? Are we obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Second, we must understand and boldly, joyfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The old, old story I love to tell 
of God's gracious rescue of repentant sinners who come to him for salvation. And then third, we must love people with God's love. We must see people. We must lift all voices because every nation, tribe, and tongue will one day be gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lord God forever and eternity. And I pray that we will be there with them and that we will be excited at the manifest glory of God revealed through every nation, tribe, and tongue. We have a part to play in God's story. Will you bear the touch of God to those around you today? Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you use us, earthen vessels, jars of clay that you have poured the hope of the gospel into in order to bear your touch to those who need it so desperately. Lord, I pray that you will help us to yield to your spirit. I pray that you'll help us to boldly understand and proclaim the gospel. And God, I pray that you'll help us to see others as you see them. May we be in touch with your Holy Spirit. May we be in touch with the gospel. May we be in touch with other people in order to bear your touch, to come to their lives and transform them. Oh God, would you use every member of Woodmont Baptist Church to look for those divine appointments that you have prepared for us in order that we may play our part in your redemptive purposes for Nashville and for the world. God, we know that there's so much brokenness in our world. We see it everywhere we turn, all the media outlets. We know that the divisions in this country are deep and they are systemic and there are no easy fixes. But God, we believe that the gospel breaks down walls. We believe that the power of your word can bring hope and healing to our neighbors and to the world. So we ask that you would use us to bear the touch of hope, to bear the touch of healing, where there's places of division and hatred and violence and injustice. We pray these things in the power and the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.